Hello and welcome to episode two of season three of Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast all about cooking and reading and reading about cooking. We are so excited to be here with you for this episode today about a book that we have both loved, A Gentleman in Moscow. And then as always, we're going to be reading out a listener letter and prescribing something to eat and something to read. I'm one of your hosts, Sophie Hansen. I'm a food writer and I live in Orange, New South Wales. And with me, actually, we're recording on an e- in an evening. With me this evening is bibliotherapist, psychotherapist, Jermaine Lease. Hello, Jermaine. How are you? Hi, Sophie. I'm, I'm good. I feel energized now after a long day to be able to sit here and talk to you about books and food. Oh, good. Well, we should both have a very elegant cocktail as per um, Count Rostov. He would have insisted on that. But um, I actually have a glass of wine <laughs> in my hand. <laughs> okay, so let's get straight into it because I feel like we have a lot to talk about tonight. Before we do, I do want to, as always, just say such a big thank you to our paid subscribers over at Substack. Um, your support is why we can keep making this podcast and we really appreciate each and every one of you so thank you okay so today's book as i mentioned is a gentleman in in moscow by amor top we were just trying to decide whether it's amor or amor i think it's amor amor towels so this book is the story of count alexander rostov who is a russian nobleman and in 1922 he is sentenced sentenced by bolshevik tribunal to house arrest in a luxury hotel the metropole in moscow and should he step outside the metropole's door he will be shot and so inside it he remains for the next 32 years and during this time <laughs> the count witnesses his way of life in the country he knew and loved give way to a new communist regime he develops unexpected friendships, finds himself a family, gets a job and lots more. So it's a big book. I literally finished it today, I have to admit. What what are your thoughts about this book? <laughs> oh, I have so many thoughts about this book and also a bit more in the background of it too because after reading it, you know, I listened to a couple of interviews with Amor Tales and he uh, was saying, or actually I, we had dinner with friends on the weekend and one of my friends had also read the book and, and he said to me, oh, he's an historian, I think, isn't he? And I said, yeah, you'd think so. But actually he has um, literature degrees from Yale and Stanford and he was, I think, an investment banker and um, because it just reads like someone who is so heavily well-versed in Russian history mm-hmm. and uh, but in fact, it wasn't Russian history that he was so well versed in. It was Russian literature. Uh, he talked about you know Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov um, really influencing him as a university student. At the same time of as you and I did too, growing up under the shadow of the Cold War and the West's version of the Cold War in Russia was that it was a very as he described it, so black and white terms and it was all about oppression and that was it. But he felt it was a very limited picture of what society of Russian history and that by reading the Russian literature, he got much more of a flavour for a real culture and appreciation of the arts and that kind of thing. And so that was where his interest started. And and so not only is this book, but the way he went about coming up with a book, I thought was just a perfect example of actually what bibliotherapy is all about, which is using literature to understand the human condition and how it informs us about life. And he used those books to make meaning of sense of the world through being the world of those characters. And, and I just thought that was a 
it was sort of bibliotherapy in action. So it really captured me there mm. before even the book. Yeah, I can imagine. I can see that. I love. I, I I totally agree with that. And I was really interested in his story as well. And like you, I have listened to a few podcasts, interviews with Amor Tales, and you know, despite his huge success, he's only actually published three books so far. I think he's got his first one was Rules of Civility, mm. and then A Gentleman in Moscow, and then his most re- recent one, Lincoln Highway. Have you read that one? No, this no. is actually the only one of his books I've mm, me too. read. Although apparently the Lincoln um, Highway has lots of Easter eggs in there for gentlemen of Moscow fans, which is interesting, even because it's set in oh, you know right. America even in the mid fifties. Different year, a different country. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, he he talked about only writing. Well, he wrote as a teenager, but then only writing. You know, in that the last was ten years or whatever it would be, fifteen years. He was also saying on a podcast I listened to that when he turned. 40 he was really he's now 57 or something he was really disappointed with contemporary novels that he was reading and that they just weren't as rich as he'd hoped they'd be they weren't staying with him and then he read a book by the very famous literary critic Harold Bloom who was talking about the books that stir wisdom in him and he would reread again and again multiple times books that changed his life and it made Amor want to sort of circle back and start reading or rereading the books that he read as around the age of 20 and so what are those books that are rich enough to keep giving you new experiences at 20 at 40 at 60 at 80 so he then set up this reading group with three other friends where they went back and read those sorts of books um you know from like 100 years ago or 50 years ago and 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 the russians was obviously a, a group that they embarked on and then he had been traveling a lot for work as an investment banker and he'd spent a lot of time at this very nice hotel in Geneva apparently when he'd go back each year he'd notice some of the same very well-dressed people there and he said it was like they'd never left and then he thought about well what would it be like to be stuck in a grand hotel but not by choice Mm. by force and then given his knowledge of Tsarist Russia or since Tsarist Russian times, he was saying, you know, house arrest was a very, um, was used quite often. So that's where he got to Mm. at the beginning of Gentleman in Moscow. Yeah. And I I often Mm. felt throughout the book that the author felt very connected to the counter. Like I feel like potentially Amor was writing himself in a little way. And especially I listened to, he was on the Penguin Books podcast and he was talking about, I think he himself, like the Count, is a real aesthete and he's a real, he appreciates the finer yeah. things in life. And he was, I mean, obviously he's, he's, he's got his significant wealth after 20 years as an investment banker and he's been able to become a full-time writer and he's doing incredibly well because he's very good at it. But he was saying how he starts his writing day with a coffee and the New York Times crossword in his study and no one's allowed to talk to him. His children are allowed to talk to him. His wife's not, he just said, I don't want to know about you know, who's going where after school and who's got what sport. I can't have that in my head before a writing day. And then I finished the day with a cocktail and I was like, well, that's great for you, Emma, but if I was your wife, I'd be like, well, why do you get to go and, like, do the crossword in the study while I'm making lunches and organising school pickups? I thought, oh, God, yeah. it'd be nice to be in a seat like the count and but potentially not realistic for all of us. But anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> but yes, so. Although I listened to the same podcast. Oh, yes. 
was going to say I listened to the same podcast and he did actually say that he makes his wife a cocktail in the evening as well, that they oh. sit down with their martinis. <laughs> well, that's something, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. She's obviously on the morning uh, patrol. It actually really irked me, that that whole conversation. I was like, oh, you know, like that. Anyway, look, that that's the, obviously their arrangement. It's working for them so great. But, look, like thousands of other people, I, I found this book incredibly charming and and quite light in spirit despite it being set, you know, in such a grim time in, mm. in Russia, like that sort of post-revolution right through to World War II and, and after, you know, that we had the purges, we had, like it was what was going on outside of the walls of the metropole was were terrible things and but inside it seemed to be this kind of cocoon of culture and warmth and light and, and tradition. And I loved, I really did love the Count as a character. I thought he was such a kind and open-minded person and he kind of transformed from this sort of foppish aristocrat you know member of the jockey club etc etc to you know he became a waiter in the restaurant he became a father and a friend to such a varied collection of characters from the you know the hotel chef to the seamstress Mm. and actress actresses made at ease so I love that and I loved revisiting that period of Russian history I did that in modern history at school and I really got into it and so I thought it was fascinating to to kind of read about that period through because obviously he wasn't experiencing it because he was in the house arrest of the people who would come in and out of the hotel and share that with him Mm. but I also found it I did parts of it I found a little bit just unbelievable like he wasn't under lock and key he could have escaped at any time really I mean you know it wouldn't have been challenging and and also I just sort of found parts of it it didn't feel super fresh to me. Like it was sort of written by a very wealthy man about a very wealthy man living this beautiful, luxurious life, albeit under house arrest. But the, what felt fresh to me was his open-mindedness and his kindness. So I guess it sort of counter, counterbalanced that. Where the book really got interesting for me was probably about halfway through actually when Sophia, who becomes, who sort of adopts as his daughter, she arrives in his life. Before that, I found it a little bit slow, slow going and, Actually, the author sort of hints at this in a Q&A about the book on his website and he writes, when effective, a book like this can provide a lot of unexpected satisfactions to the reader. The problem is that the plethora of elements in the first half can bog readers down, making them so frustrated or bored that they abandon the book. So my challenge was to craft the story, the point of view and the language in such a way that readers enjoy the first half and feel compelled to continue despite their uncertainty about where things are headed. Whether or not I succeeded in doing so is up to you. And it's funny, Jermaine, before we started recording tonight, I took a photo of the book and I put it on Instagram and we were chatting about this and I had two direct messages in quick succession saying, oh, I'm kind of slugging along the beginning of the book. Is it worth it? Should I keep going? And and I felt a little bit the same, but I'm glad I kept going. What do you think? Did did he succeed in in bringing the reader along um, through that first bit successfully? (laughs) He really did succeed for me in bringing the reader along. Just thinking about what you were saying too about some of it feeling a bit unbelievable or a bit, you know, sort of too good to be true in parts. I did hear him in another interview say that he wanted to show readers that the book was to some degree a bit of a magical tale, that it wasn't hardcore realism. So he had sort of some magic elements in there like, you know, he mentions like the one-eyed cat or the um, goose <laughs> that would suddenly appear in the room. Yes, yeah, yeah, and the and the bees traveling hundreds of miles from his home yeah. town. And 
but he he wanted it to be a bit fable like, which reminded me a bit of a little life actually. Which um, I haven't read yet, actually. Obviously not in content. Mm, I still haven't oh, read that. Oh, yes, we talked about that before. Yeah. <laughs> it's a similar thing of where it's just so evocative. The characters are so, there's a lot of charm in there. I mean, you know, aside from there being a lot of trauma in that. But it, it, I remember the author saying about that book as well that it was meant to be a fable. So there's some sort of unbelievable things that happen, I suppose, in the plot. But I found it quite enchanting, really, from the mm-hmm. first pages. And I think I was actually concerned that my expectations would be too high because particularly after we've had so many recommendations from mm-hmm. listeners over yeah. the last few months of if you want to, you should do this book. I'd had a really good friend of mine recommend it during lockdown. There's a good lockdown read and I how swept away with it she was and and I just sort of never got round to it. And then... Like I told my mother that we were going to do it on the podcast and she'd done it in her book club a few years ago and one of her friends in the book club was actually dying at the time but she listened to it on audiobook from her bed and she wrote to mum afterwards saying, I've just had the most wonderful escape to mm. Russia. Mm. I um, just loved every – I didn't want to leave. So I thought, well, that's a pretty high endorsement. And then mm. when I bought the book, actually, I took it up to the counter and the bookseller looked at it and scanned it and said, oh, this is my book of the decade. Wow. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe a book. I've heard booksellers say, oh, this is my one of my top in the year, but book of the decade, I thought. Yeah. Oh, so I sort of began with a bit of trepidation. And I think my biggest disappointment was that I left it so long to read that I felt so pushed for time to get through it and I wanted to linger over the pages more I did find like I was reading it at night time I'd start dropping off to sleep and then feel like I'd missed a whole like so much it's so full it is very rich and full and I think yeah I just think talking about the shape of it you know my life felt very out of step with the mood of the book I kind of was annoyed that I didn't take time to read it over the summer perhaps it could but be a reread I need something you might come back yes, to. Yes, and I, I can see how it could, how I would reread it actually. And he also wanted to write a book that would be rich enough to demand a reread at different ages, a bit like obviously what he's done in his book club. He obviously fancies mm. himself as going down as one of the, the classics. But I do think there was just so much in there, in that, in the counts, in a world, and how much I got a lot of wisdom from the counts. Mm. So I didn't find it slow going, except that I suppose I, I probably wasn't in the right mood or frame of mind to try it. So maybe mm. the slow going I noticed, I assumed was my tiredness rather than it. Maybe like what you say, mm. where it, it actually felt like a little bit hard to get into. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I'm I'm so glad I did persist and it wasn't it wasn't a tough book to get going but I found that it really clicked for me in that second half I really that's when it started to Mm. it snapped for me so we thought we'd just pull out a few his relationships became stronger yeah they did sorry yeah no no not at all totally and and he yeah the whole and he took that job and anyway we'll, we'll cover a few of those things now because we We'll pull out a few little themes, I, I guess, and and mm. chat about those. And and the first one, um, and I think this is potentially why during lockdown this book really hit its straps and, and resonated with so many people is this idea of, you know, food as time travel. And as we've said, the Count is someone mm. who appreciates the finer things in life and he 
he you know he's very particular about meal times and matching food and wine etc and you know there's a scene towards the sort of end of the first half of the book and the count is about to pack it all in and give up on life and he's up on the roof of the hotel but a caretaker he, fellow he knows he spots him and beckons him to come over and there's a swarm of bees on the roof of the hotel and he asked him to taste the honey you referred to this earlier and that both men are from Novgorod in Russia and the hunt and he says he Dutifully, the count put the spoon in his mouth. In an instant, there was a familiar sweetness of fresh honey, sunlit golden and gay, and the honey tastes like a thousand apple trees, like his childhood, which is probably a bit unbelievable, as you say, but, you know, that moment kind of changed everything for him and he, you know, reminded Mm. him there's there's future springs and future blossoms and life's worth living. And then there's that wonderful, wonderful scene, I loved it, about the bouillabaisse where um, the count and his two friends the chef and the maitre d' make this amazing soup and they've planned it over months and there's, I think was it 15 particular ingredients? There was no skimping. I write, I love how he writes. Mm. It was the symphony or the silence. I love that. And at last, at one in the morning, mm. the conspirators took their seats. On the table before them was a single candle, a loaf of bread, a bottle of rosé and three bowls of bouillabaisse. And they share this meal that took all three men somewhere quite different, out of their hotel room, out of Soviet Russia, this is what the author writes. In other words, with the very first spoonful, one finds oneself transported to the port of Marseille where the streets teem with sailors, thieves and Madonnas, with sunlight and summer, with language and life. And I think it's scenes and packages, passages like this that really did contribute to how well this book did in lockdown or any time. Just that idea that, you know, you could be stuck at home. I mean, I'm, I'm desperate to travel, but we just don't have the time or the funds to do that right now. But you can recreate experiences, can't you, with with ingredients or a meal yeah. that takes you somewhere. I really loved that part of the book. I think it's funny because we both picked the same food scenes out, mm-hmm. that the ones that really captured us both when I saw your notes. And I, I think what I really appreciated about the way food was used in this book was it's just so heavily intertwined with this whole sense of self. Like it's sort of indistinguishable from the person and the and the culture. I pulled out a particular quote which I just thought was really, really beautifully evoked that loss he had of the Russia he knew and that actually would never return. That little tableau, for all its innocence, was somehow suggestive of exactly what had been bearing down on the Count's soul, for he understood every aspect of the scene at a glance. Having returned from some outing at four o'clock and having hung his jacket on the back of a chair, the room's current resident had called for tea in an afternoon edition. Then he'd settled himself down on the couch to while away a civilised hour before it was time to dress for dinner. In other words, what the Count had observed in Suite 317 was not simply an afternoon tea, but a moment in the daily life of a gentleman at liberty. I don't know, it just really touched me that image just brought up the grief of the fact that he was no longer at liberty mm. and life was no longer like that anyway. Mm. Oh, I'd like to be a gentlewoman at Liberty drinking afternoon tea every day like that. Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I think that was part of the fantasy for me reading this yeah. book, to be honest. Yes. It's like imagining my life as a Russian aristocrat. Well, particularly. I mean, the house arrest, but. Yeah, maybe not that bit. But you are in such a busy time of your life. Um, and that idea of, you know, setting aside two hours every day to just have afternoon tea and read the afternoon edition. I mean, oh, God. I mean, I read through this book and I... Before dressing for dinner. Yeah, I mean, I really didn't feel sorry for the Count much at all because, 
you know, even though he was under house arrest, he he was having a pretty nice time of it, really, compared to the overwhelming majority of people in Russia at that time, at least. Well, yes, he. We'll get to it a bit later, but like he he had to kind of make a choice about how he was going to deal with being under house arrest, didn't he? Mm. I think that was one of his real strengths that he could create the world that he created. But mm. yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, and so the next one, I guess, is this idea of like savoring luxuries in life, whether they're big or small. One of the main kind of threads through this book that I loved is this idea of the quiet pleasure of consuming art of a good meal, a perfectly made cocktail, time to read. And of course, the Count had a lot more time than we do in our lives at the moment, um, more time than he probably (laughs) would have liked. But I I do think it's a reminder that a civilised life doesn't necessarily mean a life of great wealth. You know, you can make yourself a beautiful cocktail and just sit outside and enjoy that. Or, um, And it's a good reminder for myself, I guess, to do, to, to, take those little luxuries where they come and not necessarily expensive things but just moments and he I love how he describes um, cocktails and you and I have talked about cocktails a lot and I really wish I liked those elegant little cocktails he talks about but I'm still a longer gin tonic style girl but anyway he writes a cocktail is not meant to be a melange it's not a potpourri or an easter parade at its best a cocktail should be crisp elegant sincere and limited to two ingredients well, there we go, gin and tonic. So, there you go, like gin and tonic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like he's talking about martinis again, which we've got to just like keep working on to enjoy, I think. <laughs> we'll get there. I think you're right. <laughs> Actually, Emma was saying in that Penguin interview that um, he has a, mart- a very small martini glass so you get just the right amount mm. of, of spirit with the, yeah, because otherwise if they're too big, then they're warm by the time you get to the bottom and they're too alcoholic and you won't be able to do anything afterwards. But Well, I listened to that too and then actually yeah, made me I think, gentle, yeah, well, maybe that was my problem with my martinis that I, were, I wasn't making them small or cold enough. But anyway, yeah. I digress. If any mixologists are listening with advice, please, please send it through. <laughs> yes, let us know. <laughs> yes, so with the Savoring Life's Luxuries, I think for me that was also around that idea of the meal not just being about the food but like that the bouillabaisse scene you talked about where they had the simple candle and the mm. tablecloth and the and yeah being about the company as well as and the wine like I, I really you know I smiled at the way he would choose his wine with dinner or he watched the young couple on a first date mm. and the man trying to work out how to choose the wine and he you know he sort of gave his advice and but there's a scene where uh, he becomes friends with the the young girl Nina who's living in the hotel as well and how she kind of opens the world up for him too by the way mm. she explores the hotel and they're um they're they're looking through the all the silverware and um the dining room there's a scene where she she picks up what looked like a delicate splayed with a plunger and ivory handle and looked at and then she looked at the count in wonder an asparagus server he explained and then she says, does a banquet really need an asparagus server? And he replies, does an orchestra really need a bassoon? <laughs> and I just thought that was a lovely way to bring in art, music and food all at once. But it reminded me those sorts of uh, things around, um, well, the extra stuff around food. It reminded me of a really dear friend of mine who's English and one day we must have been talking about old English cutlery or something and 
or I pulled out a cake slice or something and she told me about grape scissors and have you heard of grape scissors? No, no, but I feel like I'm, I'm excited that you're going to tell me about them. <laughs> <laughs> I need a pair oh, in my I life. I couldn't, I'd never heard of them before. <laughs> well, look, I have a pair now. Oh, stop it. Where'd they come from? <laughs> Jermaine, wait, we've got a video up and I can see them. You're holding them. Oh, they look beautiful. The cat would be proud. (laughs) These beautiful silver scissors, I'll put a picture of them in the newsletter. So, yeah, she was saying, no, seriously, you should, you have grape scissors that cut the grapes on your cheese plate. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I don't think that's true. She went back to England for holiday and then she brought me back a a pair, that that pair, she brought me back an antique grape cutters or grape scissors and I I yeah like I I don't use them well do you know I actually think that I would use them if I had some because one of my pet hates is if we've got a bunch of grapes in the fridge and the kids just like kind of pull the grapes and leave like this gross looking stalks so I think actually we need some great scissors in our life we all need you go They, yeah, they're, well, maybe I should use them more often, actually. They're kind of in the good drawer. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, the good silverware <laughs> drawer, and I should just have them in the kitchen. But so maybe maybe a fruit platter does need a pair of grape scissors, mm. like an orchestra needs a bassoon. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I loved about those luxuries, like the art, food, music, as you say, was how he would bring it all together with, to make him understand or help him to understand the world. And this is where the richness in the language lay for me which I could keep going back to again and again and and thinking about like his point here about first impressions what can a first impression tell us about someone we've just met for a minute in the lobby of a hotel for that matter what can a first impression tell us about anyone why no more than a chord can tell us about Beethoven or a brushstroke about Botticelli by their very nature human beings are so capricious so complex so delightfully contradictory that they deserve not only our consideration but our reconsideration and our unwavering determination to withhold our opinion until we have engaged with them in every possible setting at every possible hour. I love that. Um, I love that. And he was mm. so forgiving and so open-minded, wasn't he? Mm. You know, he was the opposite of what you would think a snob a snob would be or something, you know, an aristocrat mm. who... yeah thinks he's above everyone he thought he was above no one did he which actually brings me to my last point about the book which that I just think it is a really beautiful argument for courtesy and graciousness you know because really that's what he was such a wonderful character he was always a gentleman you know position and wealth aside he was just all class all the time and I love this line with the author writes, the Count had restricted himself to two succinct pieces of parental advice. The first was that if one did not master one's circumstances, one was bound to be mastered by them. And the second was Montaigne's maxim that the surest sign of wisdom is constant cheerfulness. I just love that. I think we all need to be constantly <laughs> cheerful as much as possible in the face of whatever life I know, I agree. He was such a... Well, gentle. Yeah, he really was a gentleman, wasn't he? But not in a superficial way, in, mm. a, in a very lived through way. It really guided how he viewed the world. And um, I love this quote, as both a student of history and a man devoted to living in the present, I admit that I do not spend a lot of time imagining how things might otherwise have been. But I do like to think there is a difference between being resigned to a situation and reconciled to it. Mm. 
and that's the quote I was trying to remember earlier saying that yes it seemed too good to be true they seemed to he made the best of the situation he was in and I thought found that quite Mm. uplifting Mm. that idea of not being resigned but being reconciled they're quite different aren't they Definitely. And, you know, I would never presume to do a job for you, Jermaine, but I, I'd love to know this book. I can imagine that it might be a useful a useful thing as a bibliotherapist, a title that a bibliotherapist might maybe prescribe to certain people mm. going through certain things. Is there a particular kind of scenario or a, a problem that someone might come to you with that you would prescribe this book for, just to put you on the spot? <laughs> Gosh, well, there could be so many reasons but I wonder actually is something like that being a being in a situation that you don't not of your making that you don't didn't choose or didn't Mm. want it could perhaps be a good book for people who feel stuck or living a life that that something's happened to you know whether it be a relationship breakdown or a move that they didn't want to have happen or a job redundancy or early retirement like I could imagine in those situations it could be quite a helpful book about Mm. how you can yeah reconcile yourself to where you're at at this point in time and I think just a book that kind of reflects over a long life lived like he was that love other lovely line that really stayed with me at the age of 64 he was wise enough to know that life does not proceed by leaps and bounds it unfolds at any given moment, it is the manifestations of a thousand transitions. I mean, there's just such wisdom in that. Yeah. I think it's a great book for anyone looking for a, a bit of wisdom. And faith maybe, a bit of faith in humanity. It gave me faith, that. yes. <laughs> Hope. Hopefulness, yeah. Oh. You know, he says to Sophia at the end of the book that we've ventured to make the hotel seem as wide and wonderful as the world and, and I really felt at the end of it that's what Amor did for me reading this book that that hotel did become wide and wonderful yeah Yeah. because actually when you suggested it and I hadn't read it yet I was like oh god really a book that's all set in one hotel that's really big and long is this going to be boring but it wasn't at all was it (laughs) like the hotel became this kind of um, unfolding world of delights that that takes a bit of skill I think from an author so well done Amor (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so should we move on to our letter now? I feel like, is there anything else you wanted to say about the book? Yeah. No, just that I don't know that I necessarily would have ever picked it up to read had it not been for numerous messages from listeners, actually. And I am so thrilled that you did take note of it and made us read it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm glad to. Thank you so much. Um, and well, I, my, both my mum and dad yeah. read it and loved it and had recommended it for a, a couple of years. So I was glad to report back that I had read it and loved it. Um, All right, so on to our letter. Jermaine, would you like to read it out for us? Definitely. Thank you for your podcasts. Listening to them stimulates my mind, lightens my soul and makes me hungry. I would like to ask about your philosophy on persevering with tough books and recipes. By nature, I love to complete tasks and pride myself on perseverance. However, this does not always bring me joy and I wonder about the wisdom in persistence for the sake of it. I would like to confess the times I've quit with both reading and cooking. Wolf Hall, Captain Corelli's (laughs) Mandolin and Angela's Ashes. 
just as an aside, need to also admit to not getting through those three books myself. All three. Um, oh, anyway, wow. all three, yeah. I'm two out of three. <laughs> oh, you're two out of three. <laughs> Should I guess which two? Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'm thinking Captain Corelli's Mandolin. I loved that book. And No, I loved that book. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no, All right, Paul. we'll fall on Angela's ashes. I tried. I failed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Mm. But what about, okay, white sauce, pastry and creme caramel are the three recipes that she's um, given up on. Okay, I have theories and all three will come to those later. We will, I'm going to change your mind about them. Yes, I'm sure you will. <laughs> okay, so back to the letter. Could you please give me an example of a book or recipe you gave up on and one you were glad you persevered with? How do you decide when to persevere and when to quit? I don't want to limit my personal growth and quit too easily, but I also want to find joy. Oh, I love this letter and it's just perfect, I think, for today. Mm. Um, so thank you so much for writing in and sharing that that did make me laugh when I saw those books so I think when it comes to cooking cooking should be something that is fun and enjoyable and yield something that you know nourishing that you're happy to share or that you have to share because we have to feed ourselves and our families so I think that obviously certain things are worth persevering to you can you nail it but I also really firmly believe that there are certain things that are left best left to the experts you know trained pastry chefs who have spent years sometimes decades perfecting their craft (laughs) I have tried macarons choux pastry and croissants it's just it's been like all right middling to all right but nothing like the ones you get in the shop so I feel like things like that leave it to the experts you know they're so good at what they do let's just go out and buy a beautiful croissant but I think with something like um white sauce um which is actually a really handy thing to know to have up your sleeve a white sauce recipe for your lasagnas or whatever you might be using it for I'm going to put a recipe in the show notes it's so easy it really is it's just just having the basic quantities right and a few little techniques and especially pastry I spent a lot of probably up to my late 20s thinking I was hopeless at pastry my granny always had really cold hands she was like really good at pastry and I always thought I didn't but with a good recipe and a bit of practice it's absolutely if if it's something you want to do like some people might be like I'd rather eat my own arm than make pastry it's not in my list of things I want to do I get that but if you do want to learn it it's not hard you just need a good recipe so the recipe that I'm prescribing today is a classic custard tart a nice deep dish one Uh, a letter writer recommended mentioned that pastry has been a bit of a sticking point for her so I hope that um the simple sweet short crust pastry I'm going to share in our, our subscriber newsletter and today I videoed a step-by-step kind of instruction on which will pop in videos in the newsletter as well which I hope will change all of that because it's just so easy once you kind Mm. of get it and sometimes you just need to see it to get it I hope and because she mentioned creme caramel I'm kind of grabbing the custody theme as well because custard tarts are a little bit easier (laughs) you just sort of whisk the ingredients to the the cream and eggs and the vanilla and the sugar together and pour it in over your short crust base and then in the oven so easy and I've actually made three custard tarts this week to get this one right <laughs> and my family, both my husband and my son, I know, and they are like it's their all-time favourite thing is custard tarts but today actually I really nailed it. This is the one for the video and it was perfect but I was like we can't eat anymore so I like cut it all up and I delivered it up to the neighbours, took some up to the bus stop and gave it to the neighbours' <laughs> kids. 
so that's what we're going to that's what I would suggest trying and like anything you know if you practice if you do cut pastry once and it's a failure don't give up on it you know it's just maybe it was too hot in the kitchen maybe you know you didn't have the right recipe maybe 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 bit of practice when it comes to books I have definitely given up on certain books and I will continue to because I do think life's too short to persevere in a book that you mm. really aren't enjoying or that the themes or the writing style is just not resonating with you. I heard today that Goodreads did a survey and found that 38% of people said they would plough on with a book regardless of how much they were enjoying it or not and that giving up is something they would never do. I have, I don't know why, but I've got this rule for myself that I've got to read to 80 pages before I give up on a book. And my daughter is doing the book thief for school at the moment and she mm. is telling me that she's finding it a bit hard to get into in the first few chapters. And I actually remember that book as well, taking me a little while to get into. So mm. I've been saying, no, 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 you've got to press me because it's so amazing. But what about you? Is there a point where you, is there a, a page mark that you have to get to or do you always persevere with a book? Well, it's so funny that the 80-page thing <laughs> with you it's like a magic number, isn't it? Because I remember in our last episode, you said it took to page 80 of Isaac and the Egg yes. before you decided, yes, I actually really like this. I want to get into it. It's like so a psychological thing now. I've got to just get to 80 pages. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Amor also said in a, um interview that he had a, actually it was on the Just Booked, you know, our Daisy Buchanan yeah, Just Booked podcast say. we love. I'll put that up. He also has a theory on, or he's, sticks to the theory that American librarian Nancy Pearl, I think she's written books before too, said that you need to be willing to make an investment into a book, but you don't need to finish it. So her rule of thumb is that the amount of time you spend reading it should be relative to your age. So you take 100 away from your age. So if you're 20, you need to read 80 pages. Yeah. <laughs> but I if you're that. 80, you only need 20 pages. And then he also says, you know, and if you're 99, you give it a page. <laughs> and if you don't like it, move on. But obviously, I love you that. feel like you're 20 at heart. So <laughs> I'm young at heart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I loved. I listened to that as well. I really liked that. But the one book that I have given up on and that I don't feel bad about was The Idiot, um, which I just couldn't. I just tried. I did try. I got over 80 pages, and I was just like, no. Maybe I'm not smart enough for this book. I'm not too sure. But I think certain books, you know, reading should be a pleasure. We talked about this in the last episode a bit, you mm. know, that, that reading should be pleasurable. And I know that persevering for the reward is is also pleasurable, but sometimes you just know that a book is not for you. And I think just walk away at that point. Personally, what do you think? Yeah. Well, yes, I agree with that because actually bibliotherapy is all about reading for an emotional response, not for feeling like you've achieved something by finishing a book and it's all about finding the joy that our letter writer's talking mm. about so I would never suggest persevering or ever say that someone had quit too easily because I think I'm be more curious about why they might have had such a strong reaction to the book and that would be more of an interesting thing to explore not the need to finish it but the why it was just so jarring or so I don't want to go on with it or I was trying to think as well I don't know that I have persevered with a book that I've then at the end thought, oh, I'm so pleased I kept going. But I have certainly many unfinished books. But there's another thing that he said in that interview about how, you know, the Russians weren't, the, the, you know, the Russian canon of literature 
wasn't really written for 18-year-olds and yet that's when we all mm. get faced with those books because you just don't have the emotional experience or, or world life experience to really see the richness and, and get that out of it. And funny that you said The Idiot because I remember at like 17 trying to read Dostoevsky's The Idiot and I couldn't get beyond a few pages. And so I was probably that age too, actually, maybe even All the Russians were the same. Yeah, yeah. In the last 10 years, I've read some Chekhov's short stories. I've gone with the short stories. Very wise. I have seen value in and enjoyed. Yeah, I've never kind of, that, that experience at 18, I didn't realise how concrete it had become, like it had set that in stone. And the, the way he talked about finding different things in books at different ages, particularly with those Russian books, I thought, oh, well, maybe it would be a whole different experience now. Mm. So maybe you could call that persevering, like if you choose in 20 or 40 or whatever years' time to go back to a book that you couldn't read before, maybe our letter writer could think of it that way, that it's not the right book for now, Mm, for whatever's going on in my life now, whatever life stage I'm at now. But who knows, in 20 years' time, it might be one to revisit. And so when I was thinking about prescribing a book, instead of prescribing a book that was worth persevering (laughs) with, I thought, oh, I'll keep playing around with this idea of books that will open up different experiences in the readers in a world. Because this is the thing with reading that whatever text we read meets with our inner world that no one else knows or has. And therefore, we, are, we cannot but not experience those books completely differently to one another. So I've decided to prescribe uh, a collection of short stories by Joyce Carol Oates and it's called The Other You and all these stories are about explore lives where had we made a different choice or been a different version of ourselves, something else might have happened. They all kind of explore how choices shape us and change us and or leave us wondering and um, I was thinking about, you know, is there like a an other uh, of our letter writer, is there another her that reads all books cover to cover and, and would that actually be a better life? And these short stories, I don't know if you've read any Joyce Carol Oates before, but she's quite mm. dark. She's not upbeat and uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought she's an amazing writer and her idea there she has ideas in there to grapple with and I just thought given their short stories they might also just be a flavor of of exploring well, exploring her as a writer as well because she's mm. been prolific yeah so that that's where I got that's how I decided to I love that. okay well look short stories are definitely achievable aren't they like the persevering is probably you know, maybe I'll cut my 80 pages down to the first eight pages of a short story. <laughs> but, yeah, well, and to our letter writer, if, if you do try any of our prescriptions, we'd love to hear what you think. And everybody else, you know, you can always talk to us mm-hmm. on our Instagram or on Substack. But I feel like that might have brought us to the end of our episode mm-hmm. today. Thank you so much, Jermaine, yes. for that recommendation and, as always, your insights and thoughts. I love this book. So thank you for suggesting it. I really do appreciate it because I'm, I'm glad I read it. I really am glad. I thought it was just what I felt like, actually. And um, I did start it during summer and read most of it on our holidays. So I was in, probably in a better headspace than the busyness uh, of life, I think. Headspace for me. Yeah. yeah. Go, I was going to say I'm looking forward to your video of 
Oh, the custard tart. your video of custard tarts because <laughs> just the, I didn't say anything there about food and persevering oh, with yeah. food. But that souffle, I would never, I don't think I would have, well, I didn't even try. That's even worse. <laughs> I didn't even try and then quit. I just would never have even attempted. There's something about cooking that's a skill and if you've got a good teacher mm. or a good recipe or a good mentor, then I can I, think you know you can achieve a lot more than you think you can oh totally and I think you know as, as I was making the tart today you know I was even saying in the video like it's not perfect it doesn't have to be perfect we're not making these things to sell um you know commercially like it's just got to taste good and make you feel good you know the making of it mm-hmm. so I think cooking like reading I mean obviously we just sometimes have to cook to but for necessity right to feed people but things like a tart or you know pastry things like that we we make because we want to and if you really don't like doing that don't do it you know go and buy a beautiful tart somewhere Mm. but if you if you do want to flex that muscle and get that skill it's really sad there's nothing more satisfying or potentially maybe bread but pulling out a beautiful tart from the oven and (laughs) you have made this with your two hands from some flour some sugar some butter and a few handful of ingredients I think that's hugely rewarding but we will leave it there because I feel like we've got given everyone lots to think about and maybe some good things to read and cook I hope thank you for listening thank you Christy for producing thank you Smith and Jones for the beautiful music um is there anything else Jermaine we need to mention before we wrap it up I think uh just yes we're always on the lookout for letters so if anyone's got any question or any just want to make contact with us or ask for a prescription please do Mm. and you'll get wine Oh, yes. Thank you. Single vineyard sellers. Yes, single vineyard sellers will give you a case of of wine if we use your letter. And our next book, I guess we should say, what's our next book, Sophie? It's your choice next. Oh, God. What is the next one? Oh, Milk Fed. It's Milk Fed. Okay. I am so excited to talk. Have you started reading it? No, I haven't Mm. yet. I just finished The Gentleman in Moscow. Well, it's it's quite short in comparison, but it's – quite different I've actually got my I'm, I'm getting very efficient I've convinced my book club to do the same book as the one we're doing in the podcast I'm like, <laughs> I'm like cutting down my reading required reading for the month but I'm really looking forward to and actually we're going to have our book club discussion before the podcast once I'll be gathering everybody's wow. thoughts the book cover actually Great. describes as like weird filthy and funny so that gives you a bit of a clue to what it's all about but it is a bit different for us but it's good and it's going to be some great conversation I think Great. Can't wait. All right. Thanks, Jermaine. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, thank you to our subscribers for your support. We're so appreciative. Um, Thanks, and we'll see you next time. See you later. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world I 
Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, my mind it starts a wandering, wanting to roam its way right out of my head. And I get to thinking about that man. I wonder if he's headed south again, or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led. But I. Just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world, and I ain't a southbound girl. I'm just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. Okay. 